0: if we don't take seriously that people live in a symbolic world and expression and narrative and story and song poetry that all of that is 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 essential to how we navigate and understand then we're we're always gonna have only half the solution
1: Welcome to Arts Engines. I am your host, Aaron Dworkin, and with us as today's guest, we have Stephen Tepper, who serves as Dean of the Herberger Institute for Design and the Arts at Arizona State University. Welcome, Stephen.
0: Thank you, Aaron. It's great to see your face, even
1: virtually. Right, exactly, exactly. Well, thank you so much. Uh, So, you know, I thought I would just kind of dive in and, uh, you know, uh, ask how are things, uh, you know, at ASU, and uh, what has the transition been like for you and especially for the Institute? Has it been kind of easier than other units at the university or more difficult? How have you found it?
0: Yeah, uh, I want to believe that it's been more difficult. as, as you know, uh, in an arts and design college, probably 85% of our courses require access to some kind of space or equipment, um, whether it's a kiln, uh, whether it's a um, woodworking shop, whether it's a dance studio, whether it's a recital room. Um, and a lot of our courses, of course, require collaborative work, uh, theater performance, um, uh, ensemble work. So. Uh, yeah, I think, you know, the, how do you shift, um, your modality completely, uh, yeah. is, was a real challenge for us. Now w- we had five days of notice and, uh, in five days we moved a thousand courses into a remote or online mo- modality. So, um, you know, this is one of those things where, uh, you're always, um, surprised and inspired by people's resilience. You know, in, in universities, we sort of have a culture of complaint. Um, you know, we're all brilliant and creative and, and have our ideas, and we're here because we want to do our thing and we want to teach our way. And um, So universities sometimes are really resistant to change. Uh, and often, um, you know, the administration leadership can often be perceived as being the black hat in, 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 in the world. Um, and in this moment, none of that, there was no white hats or black hats. Um, you know, people just, when, the, you know, they just made the changes they needed to make. Obviously imperfect, but, you know, in the end, um, I think what it's, what it's, for me, what it's told us is that, uh, you know, creativity doesn't exist in a tool or a technology, right, it's, it's in our imagination, it's whatever idea we can conceive of, um, and there's you know, a million ways to express it, but what's most important is the idea itself. And so uh, once I think faculty sort of realized that it wasn't about the, the vessel in which people delivered their idea, it was about the idea, and we could still engage around ideas that there's no reason we can't continue to advance our students um, you know eventually towards a place where they can get back together and make together but in the meantime they can still learn they can still evolve their ideas they can still get critique they can still collaborate so
1: awesome awesome and you know you've kind of been at you know this forefront of innovation in so many ways and everything that you're doing there and of course related to creativity do you think that through things that were we have been required to do because of the pandemic that they will actually hold forth, in other words, past when you don't have to do it? Are there certain things that you've learned about, you know, maybe these courses or this aspect of what we do might actually be better remote, or do you think some of the changes will remain after they're no longer actually necessary?
0: Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, Liz Lerman, um, who's one of our institute professors, a, a great choreographer, um, and collaborator asked me, uh, you know, about a month ago. She says, "What, what do you want to keep from this?" And I think all of us should be sort of asking that question: What do we want to keep? Because um, it's not all—it's not all bad—and um, uh, and we're learning a lot. So, from an educational standpoint, I think I think there, I think we're learning a lot about um, uh, the that a lot of what we do can be done. Through technology. Not everything, but we could begin, I think, reimagining the pacing of, of teaching and learning. So I, I think what we will see from this, and I think the innovators will learn how to really advance low residency options for, especially in arts and culture, right? Where a lot of pre prep work can happen, a lot of thinking and designing and imagining and then we can come together for intense moments of time almost in a festival environment to create to make to perform to present um and when you start thinking about low residency one costs change and two your facilities can be um deployed more effectively for more people right so you can start to scale better in a, in that kind of model so i think this is inching us towards recognizing that education in a low-residency model can be extremely effective um, and that arts and culture could, you know, uh, certainly help lead that and imagine that. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I think more broadly outside of education, uh, I would say that this has renewed arts and culture's uh, intimate relationship with its audiences. And so, um, you know, in, in the 19th century, arts and culture happened in people's living rooms. Um, you know, Shakespeare after dinner, uh, playing the guitar on the front porch, drawing uh, images of your loved one. Uh, there were, 100 and, uh, there, I think, 150,000 drawing manuals in the 19th century because people, you know, had, had to have a ways to record the things, the people that they loved, and so they learned how to draw. Um, The professionalization of arts and culture put everything on stages and in galleries and created this distance um which is powerful because we've advanced some of the most excellent most inspiring work uh known uh, in humankind but uh that intimacy has been reduced um and now we're seeing artists enter people's living rooms again um and i think it's really touched a a chord i think we're realizing that when Lin-Manuel Miranda shows up in your living room to listen to your senior, your senior, uh, musical number that you didn't get to do on stage, that one, he can do that. It's easy. He doesn't have to get on a plane. It took five minutes. Um, and it, it, you know, it made a major difference in a young person's life. And so I think, I think as, as a cultural sector, we're kind of, um, reintroducing ourselves to the idea of intimacy and in, in culture. And I think that's going to be something that we keep.
1: Mm-hmm. Awesome. So kind of thinking about this role of the arts, to back away necessarily from the, you know, related to things happening because of the pandemic, but this overarching role of the arts, which of course you've spent a significant amount of time thinking about, uh, and uh, not only at Arizona, at Vanderbilt, et cetera, you've been at the forefront of this kind of thought about, this role of the arts. I was wondering if you could speak first to the role of the arts in a research university, but then broader in society. And that is in the context of uh, the case for it, right? The why. Right. The why for the arts in a broader research university of all of these competing uh, you know, uh, uh, aspects and things that are perceived of value at a university you have to go in to the president and say, here's why the arts are important when we have our medical system and we have all the sciences and we have all these other areas. Here's why the arts kind of matter and or should or should not be integrated with others. Just kind of, could you share, since you've spent so much time thinking about this, yeah. what's your sense of that in the research setting and then the broader society?
0: Yeah, so uh, I guess I'll, I'll start with the research setting. Um, you know, I've thought a lot about what, what a creative campus is um, and how, how you deploy creativity across the campus. And I'll, I'll just say, one, you know, when I first, I think, put that word out in, into the world in an article in the Chronicle, Chronicle of Higher Education, it got a lot of attention. And I've thought, I've been thinking about why. Like, why did it strike a chord? Um, not only in the arts. I mean, I think partly in the arts because it was like, okay, here's a renewed Argument for our value, but also in in all parts of the campus, uh, that word creativity sort of mattered. And so, one hypothesis I've come to is that um, you know universities have historically been these special places, almost magical places, right? That that operate a little bit outside of the normal pushes and pulls of our modern economy and bureaucracy and administrative forms of institutions and government. Uh, they, uh, they're, they're, I mean, Those of us attracted to them are, are because we, you know, want to be measured by something different than a simple output model. Hey, we want to be able to be in collaborative spaces that feel generative. Um, and over the years, universities have really grown to feel and look very much like most other modern bureaucratic administrative units, right the, our budgets, uh, the way we we count things, um, you know it, we're, we're sort of classic modern bureaucracies, techno bureaucratic places mm-hmm. and so I think the creative campus for a lot of faculty and staff and students it's sort of a, a, a call to reanimating the campus. Um, or what I might call um, uh, uh, the the, the sort of magic that we've lost, um, uh, you know, we wanna wanna retrieve that. Mm -hmm. And I think the Creative Campus gives us a promise that that's possible. We can work differently, we can work collaboratively, we can do that, we can teach that class we've always wanted to teach. Um, We can think about our value beyond you know, simply research grants and a uh, number of credit hours, right? The things that end up becoming uh, uh, the routine ways we evaluate. So, I, I think that's partly why arts and culture can reanimate the campus. Mm-hmm. I think I think there's they can create spaces of collaboration. They can they can activate uh, people to to feel and act creatively, get out of routines, um, uh, participate in conversations that are choreographed and curated by artists in ways that allow people to enter them and exit them uh, in, in non-routine ways. So I think there's a, a sort of um, re-enchantment is the word I was looking for, a re-enchantment of our campuses uh-huh. um, Awesome. That, that art and culture can play. I think the other thing is that, um, and this is a case I've made to our president and our, our research vice president, um, The idea of interdisciplinarity, so now it's become kind of a common language that we can't solve our modern problems, the complexity without interdisciplinarity, without transdisciplinarity, without, um, you know, the fusion of knowledges and expertise. Well, it turns out that that kind of work is really hard. Like it's easy to say and it's hard to do because people come to collaborative spaces with their own ideas of what success looks like their own language and vocabulary, their own methodologies. Um, And so, uh, you know, artists and designers have had uh, a thousand years of working out how to work on collaborative projects, uh, emergent projects where the outcomes are unknown. Um, And so uh, I have said that we we should deploy artists and designers on our campus to help these collaborative teams build the glue and the muscle um, because Mm -hmm. we know how to do that work Mm -hmm. right we always come together where the the outcome is unknown and it's emergent and we've got to work out different ideas of what success looks like Mm -hmm. so part of it is can we use artistic processes and practices and knowledge to help a research university think about collaboration more broadly Um, and then i think the other piece is that you know um I think all of our disciplines, whether it's our, our, you know, public policy, sustainability, engineering, business, education, public health, uh, you know, they're really open to wanting to have a cultural perspective in, uh, integrated into the way they advance knowledge and the way they try to solve problems. Um, and I guess that leads me just a little bridge to the broader question of the role of arts and culture in our society. You know, I'm a sociologist, and I went to public policy school. When I was at the Kennedy School of Public Policy, um, we didn't, there's nothing in our curriculum. Here we are, we're we're training the future public administrators, public policy leaders, art and culture absent. Not a single word about arts and culture as a strategy for improving our communities. Mm -hmm. Nothing around creativity and problem solving. So, you know, you learn, uh, Cost-benefit analysis. You learn microeconomics. You learn multivariate statistics. You learn decision tree. Do you learn design thinking? No. You know. Do you learn um, uh, radical revision? Do you do you learn uh, the process of uh, uh, critical response from Liz Lerman? No. We don't learn any of that. Right. Um, right. And what, what's amazing to me is that is that I think the reason is is because uh, you know, through our enlightenment thinking over the last 150 years, we've, we've come to see the world as a material world and the solutions to it are all material. It's just about moving resources around, uh, more money here, less money there, more service here, redistribution, building infrastructure. Um, and we forget that people live in a symbolic world as well as a material. Half of our life is about making meaning. Right. And the other half might be around sort of hunting and gathering the resources we need to survive. And so if you leave out the half of the, our world, which is about making meaning, there's no way we can solve our problems yep. because we're not we're not really meeting people where they live, which is in a okay. world of symbols. So and artists and designers are our symbol makers, our symbol manipulators, our, our storytellers. So for me, the larger issue is uh, if we're going to make our world a better place. That if we if we don't take seriously that people live in a symbolic world and expression and narrative and story and song, poetry that all of that is 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 essential to how we navigate and understand, then we'll, we're we're always going to have only half the solution. Um, so that that's kind of the larger no, vision for the role of arts and culture. Absolutely,
1: that's. Phenomenal, and kind of, and unfortunately, we're, uh, we're running short on time here uh, and uh, wanted to make sure I always like to ask my guests kind of if there were three things that you would share. So kind of given this, you know, role of the arts and this breadth of understanding that you have of it, if there are those out there who are thinking about whether it being, you know, administrative leaders, academic leaders or practitioners. Are there three things or three words you might almost distill that you're like, you know, you should keep this in mind or take these three things, they should be a component, part of the framework of your regular thinking to try to advance your own, you know, goals, tra- career trajectory, et cetera. Would you have kind of three things that you might wanna leave yeah. our viewers with?
0: Well, and it, it, maybe it'll be four, but I'll do it fast. <laughs> <laughs> but I think in, in, first is is to really um, do a 360 around what your assets are. And so I, I promise you that how you imagine your value, what, what you do, the, the thing you make, uh, the, the talent the, that you have, that you're thinking about a quarter of, of what, it, what you actually have, right? You're, you're thinking about it um, in, in, in too narrow a way. So I think the first thing is like free your imagination to do an inventory of all of your assets and think about how those assets can be deployed in the world awesome. with no constraint right? that would be the first thing i think related to that is i think you've got to challenge conventions like we have to ask why do we do it this way like what is a season if you're a performing arts organization like we have an idea of what a season is and we reproduce it every year but what if that wasn't a season what if what we think is a concert you know of that format maybe that's not the format or a venue, what counts as a venue? Uh, what is the role of a musician? Um, yep. You know, these are, what's the length of time, for, right? So we, we see a, out in the world of, of film and media, this idea of short form storytelling that's emerging. Billions of dollars invested now in creating these sort of one minute to up to eight minute powerful stories, right? Brands are are, are, are switching from advertising to creating short form stories about their brand. Right. Um, so what's the short form for you know cultural venues? Sure. Um yeah. we have to think about I mean even thinking about like a season means you know you can't have a single night that's dark because the economic model drives you to present something every night. And so you know an orchestra might have whatever it has 110 concerts a night a, a, a year. Um, but you don't have time to market and promote each of those events. Like maybe you have four big concerts and each of those concerts are, are done over and over again for three weeks because you have linked those concerts to every part of your community so that before they even hit the stage, you know, hospitals and schools and colleges and, and businesses are already engaged in what you're doing. And so there's a a demand and then you, then, then you do other things other nights. Um, that may be a bad idea, but the point is that we are stuck in conventions. So the first thing is check your conventions. Why are you doing it the way you're doing it? How are you defining the thing that you're putting out in the world and could it be defined differently? Um, the, the second is, is intimacy, which I already sort of uh, mentioned, um, or maybe this I'm on the third. Um, you know, how, how can you re-engage in intimate relationships with, with audiences, with collaborators? Um, and then the last is equity, Um and uh you know, we talk a lot about equity and inclusion, um, but what I would say what we're good at is equity as a gesture, as opposed to equity as sort of tissue and bone, right? Like it's one thing to say, oh, here's a sampling of of some diverse art form or genre, um, or we're gonna do the special free admission on Sunday. Those are gestures. Right, but, but actually looking at every how you make decisions, how you hold meetings, how you have conversations, how you vet materials that go out into the public like all of those things have to be viewed for whether um, they are fully inclusive. Uh, and I would say that most of our organizations probably are, you know, 10% on the way to full, full, fully inclusive, and they have to get away from. Equity as a gesture, and really start thinking about equity as a core part of their fiber, uh, which is uncomfortable. When you start reactivating muscles, they start—they hurt for the first you know, <laughs> three days, and so equity is going to hurt for the first three years because yep. it really does require us to change things that feel comfortable um, and positions that we're in that uh, really need to be completely reimagined.
1: Oh, wow. Well, the, you have given me certainly a lot to think about, and I think our audience as well. Steven Tepper, you are truly one of the great arts engines that is fueling and powering human creativity in our world. Thank you so much for joining us on the show.
0: Well, Aaron, you're, uh, you've, you've inspired so many people, so if my engine can hook to your engine, Uh, I will always feel inspired and feel like I, I can do good work. Thank you for having me.